Last Sunday, I closed with a challenge. A challenge for you to find comfort in the knowledge that Jesus is the source of saving righteousness. That it is in Christ alone. By the way, in, in the last verse of that song that Cindy sang last Sunday in Christ alone, it says, No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here is in the power of Christ I'll stand. Now, I've mentioned more than once recently that election has to do with service and not salvation. Yes, Israel was chosen. Israel was selected. But Paul's very clear in pointing out to us that in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. All were elected for service, but only a remnant were saved. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 10. I give them eternal life, and they'll never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We can find comfort in that passage as Christians. If we are loyally, faithfully, obediently serving Him, no power can snatch us out of His hand. But I've heard these words quoted more than once out of context. Not in line with their true meaning. They're often voiced by those professing, once saved, always saved. And, yes, just like the verse says, no one can ever pluck or snatch us out of God's hand. But that doesn't mean that we're not able to remove ourselves. It doesn't mean that we're not free to rebel against God, against His love and His provisions. We were created with free will. Now, those of you that have little kids, you understand the importance of freedom. And you don't give those little kids freedom near busy streets. You don't have them in your hand. You are grasping, holding, clutching their hand. Because once they get to the age of freedom, you can hold hands, but they can let go. And now that we are mature adults, we can let go of God's hand. There's another passage. Uh, it's in Isaiah 49.16. I've also heard people rip this one out of context. The verse says, Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. The context of that verse, however, again, is not salvation, but of memory and love. 
And the preceding verse, 49.15, points out how mother and infant are bound by ties of dependence. It is her nursing child. And they're bound by life. It's the child of her womb. Yet, tragically, we are all familiar with situations where this mother-child relationship has and can fail. But the Lord will not fail. The eye is emphatic. But as for me, the Lord's unforgetting love transcends even earth's best. In fact, in verse 23 of Isaiah 49, it's proclaimed, Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. And once again, we hear a condition. They're, they're almost always present. It is those who wait for me who will not be put to shame. You don't have to wait. Many Israelites chose not to wait. And they perished. As Paul told Timothy, God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. But again, go back and read the context. Forgetting about the chapter and verse divisions and paragraph breaks. Because this follows his mention of Hymenaeus and Alexander who had made shipwreck of their faith. And whom Paul handed over to Satan. And we have to remember that a verse comes in a paragraph. And that paragraph is found in a chapter which is found in a book and that book is found in a particular type of writing in the Bible. Whether it be historical or poetic or narrative. And I hope you realize by now that people can and many people do make the Bible say what they want it to say. Supporting whatever issue they might believe and practice, especially if they think they're being questioned. So they try to find biblical support for their feelings rather than building their foundation upon what the good word says. So here's what I want you to remember. A little rhyme to it should help you. A text taken out of its context is simply a proof text for a pretext. Pretext is an excuse. I remember my dad when, when we were growing up and somebody would say something and I remember him saying often, well, you know, son, an excuse is just the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. Easy to come up with excuses sometimes. Skins of reason stuffed with lies. So the natural question to ask is, what does Paul mean by everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved? Verse 13. We looked at it last week. And I think the best way to understand the Bible always, you'll hear me often say this, the best way to understand difficult passages in the Bible is with other passages that are more clear, that are talking about the same thing. And last Sunday I talked about how Paul writes 
uh, this letter to the Christians at Rome with the background that in his own conversion, Acts 22, verse 16, God's messenger, Ananias, had said to him, who at that time, Paul, was still unsaved, unsaved Saul, he said to him to go do what Joel 2.32 says and call on the name of the Lord. But Ananias said to do that while you are being baptized and washing away your sins. Baptism, when properly understood, is never simply a work to perform. Any more than the signing of the back of a Romans Road track or even just raising your hand or getting up and walking down front. Almost all of the groups that try to claim baptism is a work do one of those other works. Oh, baptism isn't a work. Baptism is a confession. It's a time when we humbly acknowledge we confess the Lordship of Christ and, and we pray for Him to save us by the washing away of our sins through His blood. And baptism should always be accompanied with a verbal prayer calling on His name. And we always, at least I always do, I baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And now, since camp a few years ago, I've gotten into the practice uh, that I saw somebody else do of saying, buried with Christ... And as I bring them back out of the water, rising to walk in newness of life. Are you familiar, familiar with the name Walter Scott? Walter Scott was one of four key leaders in the early restoration movement, early 1900s. Along with Alexander and Thomas Campbell, Barton W. Stone, Scott began preaching salvation as a mirror of three things that man does and three things that God does. Man should believe, repent, and be baptized. And God will forgive, give the Spirit, and give eternal life. Scott would expand that. He elaborated on more, uh, talking about how faith was in the Messiah and repentance was toward God and were baptized into Christ Jesus. But later, Walter Scott... I didn't get my passage up there, did I? Oh yeah, I did. Later, Walter Scott simplified his formula. He realized that he could create a monomic device and what he would do is he'd go into those towns. We're talking 19th century, early 1800s. He'd go into a town and he'd see where all the kids were playing and he'd get them to hold up their hand. And while they had their hand up, he would say, hear, believe, repent, confess, baptize. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. And he'd get them all to memorize that. And then he'd tell them to go home and tell that to their parents and tell them about the meeting that was taking place that evening. Now why did he do that? Because, listen to me, the plan of salvation is more than just crying out in anguish. It's more than just mentally believing. And we're going to see today that you have to hear in order to believe and you have to believe in order to repent and you have to confess and you have to be baptized. 
Paul wrote in chapter 6 verse 4. Listen closely. We're buried therefore with him by baptism in death into death in order that. What's in order that? It's a purpose statement. We are buried Therefore, with Him by baptism in order, into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, you reverse it. You want to be raised from the dead by the glory of the Father? You want to walk in newness of life? Then you need to be baptized. And you know, there's no verse that I know of that explicitly includes all of the elements. I hear people all the time say, well, yeah, but John 3.16, it just says, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. doesn't say anything about baptism. No, it doesn't. Does it say anything about confessing? No. Does it say anything about repenting? No. You see, John 3.16 is not the plan of salvation in totality. But what I hear consistently in Scripture is that there is an indispensable necessity for you and I to be sharing the whole plan of salvation with others. The necessity of evangelism. I like what Kirk Cameron said. You know who Kirk Cameron is? Uh, many people know him because he was on some sitcom called Growing Pains. I didn't realize that. Uh, I know him because of that good movie Fireproof. Anybody seen the movie Fireproof? Oh man, it's fabulous. If you haven't seen it, you need to. But here's what Kirk Cameron said. If you had the cure to cancer, wouldn't you share it? You have the cure to death. Get out there and share it. There is an indispensable necessity of evangelism. And it doesn't have to do, be something elaborate. Uh, illustration. You heard me in my prayer mention Rocco who's having hip pain. I didn't even get Rocco's last name. Rocco was coming out of the post office right here in town. He drives a small black vehicle. He had a walker. And I said, I was walking. And I said, how are you doing? And he took the time to tell me. He said, I'm having really a lot of problems with my lower back and with pain. And I figured if he took the time to tell me how he was doing, I should take the time to tell him that I cared. And so I said, what's your name? He said, Rocco. I said, Rocco, if this is uncomfortable for you, I understand. But could I pray for you? He looked at me. 
He said, well, he said, I guess I'd be a fool to tell you no. <laughs> and so right over here on the street, cars going by, people going around, I put my hand on his shoulder, bowed my head, and I prayed for him. When we got done praying, he said, who are you? <laughs> and I told him my name and told him I was the minister here at the church. And if there's anything that we can do for him, to let me know. I didn't give him the whole plan of salvation there on the street. I gave him an act of care and brought him before the Lord in prayer and planted a seed. Opened a door. You know, Jesus' final words were a commission to evangelize. Go therefore, or as you are going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Notice the essential elements. Make disciples. Baptize. Teach obedience. Now before we look at our text for today, here's an image that I want to use for focus. Imagine with me for a moment that somewhere just off of the screen is somebody that's drowning. And there's sufficient rope to throw out what could help them. Can you imagine that with me? Now, for those of us who are a little bit older, I want you to also remember the song that Ella Fitzgerald sang. Throw out the lifeline. Throw out the lifeline. Someone is drifting away. Throw out the lifeline. Throw out the lifeline. Someone is sinking today. Now, unless you believe that everybody's going to be saved, which I don't, though you might wish that that were the case, which I do, I'd love for everybody to be saved, but I don't think it's going to happen, biblically speaking. The question becomes... Are we willing to throw out the lifeline to those who are perishing? How much do we really care? So with this in mind, let's look at our text. Romans chapter 10 verses 14 to 21. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, before we go any further, because I don't want you getting any excuses, skin of reasons, stuffed with lies in your head. The word preach is not a word simply for somebody that stands on a platform behind a pulpit. Preaching is proclaiming, sharing, telling. 
But they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, nation I will make you angry. Then Isaiah so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel... He says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Four rhetorical questions begin this passage and they are questions of necessity. They're all similar in form. They all begin with how. And each one of them basically is asking, how is it possible? And since they're rhetorical questions, the expected, the obvious answer is, it's not possible. And the issue, keeping the questions in context, is why have the Jews not called on the name of their Lord and Messiah? and thus received salvation. Now, many people have recognized that these four questions address actually four prerequisites that must be in place before one can call on the Lord's name and be saved. And the questions are listed in a kind of a reverse order as a chain of effects and causes. And the rhetorical aspect is that if any one of these links in the chain is missing, then it would be impossible for one to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. John Stott sums up the chain by saying, Christ sends heralds. Heralds preach. People hear. Hearers believe. Believers call. And those who call are saved. Notice also how the expressions used in the first question, how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? Those expressions refer primarily to the aspect of faith that we call trust, which is heartfelt surrender and commitment of self. How can you call on someone in whom you have no sense of dependence, no confidence in his or her ability and willingness to keep their promises? And to meet your needs. I don't know about you, but I can. As manager of Prairie State's Christian Service Camp, and I told my board members, especially my chairman, there is a minister in the greater area that if he volunteers, I'll be glad to have him do whatever he volunteers to do. But I will not ask him again to do something at the camp. Because he's always somehow come up with an excuse, there's that word, for why he can't do it. We have to trust. 
And the thing is, is that the act of calling upon the Lord as a public confession of one's faith will almost never occur at the instant that faith begins. And the fact is clear in how Paul uses an an intermediary, one that goes in between, an intermediary link between faith and salvation. And that shows that salvation is not given at the moment when one first believes, as many today believe and teach. Faith is a prerequisite for calling upon the Lord. And calling upon the Lord is a prerequisite for salvation. And just as calling on on and faith are necessarily linked, faith and hearing are necessarily linked. And I don't have to tell you this because you're intelligent people. Hearing does not always produce faith. The main point of this paragraph is that the Jews have heard, verse 18, but they haven't believed. But on the other hand, there can be no faith without hearing. In other words, hearing is a necessary condition for faith, but it's not a sufficient one. And the third question also implies an obvious answer. A proper hearing of the message of Jesus presupposes and requires the work of a third party, a herald who will announce the good news. And Paul's point is not just that this heralding work is important, but it's actually necessary. And I think, this is just an I think, But I think, I think I'm going to be held accountable for a guy that I worked with. Still tears me up. I worked with him at Winn-Dixie Warehouse in Louisville, Kentucky. And we talked a lot. And one Monday morning, he didn't come back to work. He'd been killed that weekend in an automobile accident. And I hadn't taken the time to invite him to come to church and find out a little more about what we were taught, what we had talked about. On the other hand, There's my friend Lewis Bauer who recently retired as the maintenance and grounds person for White Mills Christian Service Camp who rode back and forth with me to high school and his sister said, Chauncey, why don't you ask Bud to come to the revival meeting? If you ask him, I think you will. And I said, sure. And I asked him and he came and he accepted the Lord and he got baptized and he he went to Kentucky Christian College for a year and he called me and he said, Chauncey College just isn't for me. And I said, it's not for everybody. And he went back and he was faithful in church and he moved to Elizabethtown. He became an elder in the church and soon, instead of being a bricklayer, he was called and got the call as the maintenance keeper for the church camp. Two similar scenarios. One, I asked. The other, I did not. 
And you and I are coming in contact with people every single day who if they don't hear the message of salvation, chances are they could be lost. They need a herald. And that's why Paul quickly adds that the preachers, the evangelists, the the heralds, which includes every single one of us, need to be sent. Called and sent by God, summoned and sent by the church. And then Paul gives a statement of information. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now Paul wasn't an aspiring podiatrist. He's quoting Isaiah 52.7 which was initially a prophecy related to the end of Babylon's captivity in, or Israel's captivity in Babylon around 536 B.C. Isaiah speaking of the herald who would bring the good news as he would run on the mountain ridges and announce to the Jews left in ruin that deliverance from Babylonian captivity has come. It seems like an odd expression, doesn't it? You might ask, why are the feet singled out instead of the mouths that proclaim the message? Well, the original messenger traveled from Babylon all the way to Jerusalem on foot to bring that message of deliverance which means that the feet bore the burden and there were no smooth paved roads Yes, the message was the purpose, but without the abuse that the feet took, without the sacrifice made, that beautiful message would never have been heard. And after a long, hot, dusty journey, the messenger's feet would be the least attractive part of his body. And yet, Isaiah said, how beautiful are those feet because of the message they brought. You see, there's a need for heralds. And Paul's affirmation is for the need of both evangelists and evangelism. But what if Paul's affirmation is really a way of saying that the Old Testament has testified that the gospel, the good news, has indeed been preached to Israel? Thus, the last condition for salvation listed by Paul in verses 14 and 15 has been met. God has sent preachers. And Paul knew that was true because he himself was such a preacher who had heard and responded to the good news. And that brings me to my final point, which is the tragedy of unbelief. Verse 16 states the obvious But they, that is the Israelites, have not obeyed the good news. Now again, I shouldn't need to say this, but I believe I do. To obey the gospel is a significant New Testament concept. Listen to me, because this is significant. To obey the gospel means submitting to God's instructions. That is, meeting the conditions for receiving the saving grace promised in the gospel. The primary and representative condition for salvation is faith, as we saw in the last half of verse 16. 
But other conditions are also required. Which again has already been made clear. Go back to verses 9 and 10. Confession. Verses 13 and 14. Calling on His name. So to show that the Jews' rejection of the gospel was just part of a long-standing pattern of chronic unbelief. And if you don't believe that, go back and read Hosea and the pain that God felt and Hosea ended up feeling because of the unfaithfulness of Israel. Isaiah 53.1 Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? You see, it was true in Isaiah's day. It was true uh, in Paul's day. It was true in Jesus' day. In fact, John quotes the same passage from Isaiah in John 12, 37 and 38, declaring that Israel's unbelief is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And to Paul's dismay, the prophecy was still being fulfilled in his day. That most Jews have not obeyed the gospel is just a restatement of verse 3b. Which says, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And this is a tough one for me too. Because the high school I attended had a significant percentage of young Jewish teenagers. There were three Orthodox uh, synagogues in, in Louisville. Or three synagogues, one Orthodox and two that weren't. And one of my best friends, a boy by the name of Marty Bass, is Jewish, still Orthodox. He did ask me, when his daughter traveled to Spain, he did ask me if I would pray for her. I think that's a step in the right direction when I can have an a Orthodox Jew asking me, a Protestant preacher, to pray for his daughter. But there's, a, there's an unbelief. And we know that the Jews have heard the gospel. And we know that they understood it. But listen, hearing is not the same as believing. And does not automatically lead to saving faith. Such faith is a decision that the individual must make. And all of us, all of us know that a stubborn will a hard-headed person may refuse to believe even in the face of clearly attested facts. And that doesn't just have to do with the gospel, does it? There are some people that you could almost hit something over their head with it and they still wouldn't believe it. So herein lies the real cause of the Jews' unbelief. Paul states pretty strongly that they, they're simply a disobedient and obstinate people. Verse 21. And that brings me to my challenge for today. We need to make sure that whenever and wherever possible 
We're throwing out the lifeline. Because someone's brother is drifting away. Someone is sinking today. In the lines of the song that Ella Fitzgerald sang. And additionally, we need to posture ourselves so that we won't be disobedient because of our contrariness. Again, I've heard so many people say, well, I know the Bible says, but I feel. You know what? I'm sorry. But it really doesn't matter what you feel if it contradicts the Word of God. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today realizing that while we are here few in number, there are many outside of these walls today that are not going anywhere to join with other Christians worshiping you. And it's so obvious from Scripture, Father, that that it's not an individual act that you do off in the woods. The writer of Hebrews stressed for us not to forsake the assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. There is no such thing, Father, as Christian in the singular in your word. And help us just to just take that to heart and realize that our families, our children, our neighbors and friends are lost, sinking, drifting, because they couldn't believe what they didn't hear and they didn't hear because we didn't tell them. Forgive us and motivate us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of commitment this morning is Tell Me the Story of Jesus. Let's stand together and sing. Or tell me the old, old story. 315 in your red book.
prayer in a minute. But I want to just say to those who joined us online, thank you for being with us today. And, and uh, we're going to shut the program off right now online. But God bless you and have a good week. The reason why I've gone offline is that there is a sister that we've been praying for in the community who uh, at one point they didn't think was even going to make it. And uh, that's Haley Whaley. <laughs> Haley is needing our prayers again because she's having significant kidney issues. We don't really know the totality of the extent at this point, but... Uh, we do know that there is a need. Uh, the reason we went offline is we did, didn't have her permission. And so just keep this in-house. Uh, but let's pray for Haley Whaley in this time before we close today. All she right? She appears to be severely jaundiced. Okay, she's already severely jaundiced so, and confused. Father God, you're the great physician. We know that you have given the knowledge that doctors have, and we're thankful for that. We're thankful for the hospitals and all of those who have been trained medically to help us. But we know that above and beyond all that the hospitals can do, you can do even more. And so we bring Haley and her condition before you today, asking if at all possible that there be healing, but certainly asking for comfort and for comfort for the family as well. For her mother Pat, all of the rest. Thank you again for giving us the privilege to come to you in times like this in prayer. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Hey, for those of you that don't turn around during the service, let me share another praise with you. Jake's here. Jake. Tuesday, surgery. Thursday, I mean, surgery. Be careful around him because I don't think he's had that first appointment back yet with the doctor, have you? No. Which means that there is still a tube in his back. So. It's a stent. A stent. Okay. So be careful around him, but uh, what a blessing uh, that Jake is here so, so quickly after his surgery. All right. Well, God bless you. We'll sing our closing chorus and, and depart.
yeah, I was like, what the heck is she looking at? Or do, just get graham crackers, it doesn't matter. Who cares?
Don't forget to grab your phone. All right. Hey, Jordan. Yeah. That candle back there, can you shut that off? Oh, yeah. And I forgot to tell you, next Sunday, Jake and I talked about it. We'll be here early and we'll do children's church. All right. Oh, okay. You can leave it back there. I just wanted it turned off. Okay. That'll be awesome. Yeah, the bulletins are laying there. I got them separated by age because there's 7 through 12-year-old and then there's 3 plus. Three years plus. And so I try to usually match them up, but like today, the bulletin that I found that Eddie hadn't done, I couldn't find a match, so the 
younger ones had to do a different one. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, Chauncey, yeah. that candle right there, can you shut that one off? Yes, dear. And your phone's on the tripod still. Recorder's off. Oh, I didn't turn it off. How do you turn it off? I don't know. There's a stop button.